Welcome to Atomic Moms, a modern parenting podcast about the joys and complexities of caring for our children and ourselves. I'm Ellie Noss, and since 2014, we've been celebrating and commiserating with world-class experts, best-selling authors, and moms around the world. Hi, everyone. Today, we are taking on the generational parenting wars. I don't know if that's a thing, but you know when, like, the grandparents think that what you're doing with parenting is all wrong? Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. And in this episode, I talk about my own mom. We are sharing a small family cottage in northern Michigan this summer, like we do every year. And um, it's lovely. It's lovely, except she doesn't love the way I parent. And uh, so I'm going to get some talking points. I'm using this podcast to, you know, build up my argument against my wonderful mother. All right. I love you, mom. Now I feel bad that I even said that. But you, come on, I'm kidding. I'm kidding, everyone. But some of y'all feel me. Today's guest, oh, she's a big journalist. She and I share a few things in common. One is uh, we both got physics degrees from Harvard. Kidding. No, we were actually, we were both raised by super high achieving mothers with really high standards. And uh, we both are uh, discussing how we have chosen to take different routes in raising our own children. And by the way, that takes some courage. Okay, Catherine Reynolds-Lewis, I'm going to read her bio. I wish I had a better bio voice. She is an award-winning journalist who regularly writes for The Atlantic, Fortune, USA Today's magazines, Washington Post, and Working Mother. Her story about school discipline was Mother Jones' most read article ever. She's a certified parent educator with the Parent Encouragement Program in Kensington, Maryland. And everybody, this is kismet. She is a, seriously, this is like totally on accident. She has a free webinar that I get to share with you all. It's this Thursday, May 3rd. Go to her website, katherinrlewis.com backslash pre-order to sign up. And then you can like check out her writing page and go down the rabbit hole because I really loved all her essays. Anyway, do that. And while I'm telling you what to do, what am I, your mother? <laughs> oh my God, you guys, I got no sleep. This is going to be a real good episode. Thank God Catherine, Catherine knows what she's talking about. Well, I'm telling you what to do. Go, go subscribe on iTunes and leave a written review, please. It helps with our rankings, which helps other moms find us, uh, which also like helps attract amazing guests like today. Follow us on Instagram also uh, and join our private Facebook group. Okay, so I've been dabbling in Insta stories. Oh boy. My Instagram stories, sometimes I like I try to be funny. It doesn't work out always. <laughs> and sometimes I'm like crying on them. I feel like I'm this I'm a mom experiment in self-regulation or the lack thereof. You know, when I'm trying to self-regulate, I go on walks and this is so cool. One of the perks of running a podcast for a really long time and doing a lot of work for free. I got a stroller. <laughs> you guys, I'm so excited. I had a new stroller sent to me from Juvie and it's called the Cool. It's called Cool with a Q. And check it out. It has up to 50 configurations. Sometimes with Eliza, I just want to be like, go, go, gadget, baby Eliza. Because it's like, there's so many different options. Okay. So my nine-month-old sits in the stroller seat and my four-and-a-half-year-old Sabrina, she'll sit on the little bench while I'm pushing, it's so great because she calls it her carriage. And that way I don't have to worry about Sabrina darting out in front of driveways. And I don't have to, you know, 
use a tone of voice that I don't want to use. And I can, I can feel like I'm living up to some of the wisdom in the book we're discussing today. I don't have to be like, you're going to get hit by a car. You know, she likes to sit on the bench and it's a great alternative. And that way I actually can enjoy the walk and it can be self-regulating. So I'm curious, like, what do you mamas do for self-regulation? You know, I go for a walk with my new (laughs) juvie stroller. No kidding. I promise this is not, I know it's starting to sound like an infomercial. Do check it out. It is really cool. And I very much appreciate it. So thank you, juvie. So what do you guys do to self-regulate? Because we have to self-regulate because our kids are pushing back more than they did in previous generations. And so, you know, the kids today, those kids today, they're throwing tantrums and they're being so disrespectful. Some of the reasons why, you know, it's all the screen time, like massive amounts of screen time. There's so much less free play. There's less sleep. Our guest goes into all of this in her book. Uh, And in this episode, we're going to talk about, like, what are the potential consequences if we don't rise up to these modern parenting challenges? Because we've got to figure out how can we help our kids self-regulate and, you know, how can we have respectful relationships with them? (sighs) I will be right back with Katherine Reynolds-Lewis. Thank God she's got some answers. Okay, Catherine. so the title, The Good News About Bad Behavior, Why Kids Are Less Disciplined Than Ever, and What to Do About It, it promises so much to those of us with spirited children like myself. So so what is the good news, Catherine? Give us the good news. Let's spread it. <laughs> well, the good news is that your kids' misbehavior, while it may be inconvenient to you, is actually perfectly normal. And it's a signal that you need to investigate, that there's something going on that your child needs or that needs changing your routine or the environment that will help your child meet the needs of whatever situation you're in. So it is not a sign you're failing as a parent. It's not a sign that your kid is out of control and going to be living in a van down by the river in 15 years. (laughs) My favorite Saturday Night Live sketch, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, definitely. Um, So all of those things that we often go to instantly in our brain, the sort of catastrophizing and horribleizing. We need to stop doing that and just look at what's in front of us and just take it as a wonderful opportunity to practice whatever is needed next for our child. Okay. So in the book, you do write, and I'm quoting, we face a crisis of self-regulation. So Catherine, I ran out of coffee this morning. I totally get it. I was facing a crisis of self-regulation in that moment. I I was like, how am I going to have the energy to do this interview? Um, So that was my mini personal crisis. But the reality is, and you say this in your book also, that like people have been complaining about basically kids being, you know, bad or misbehaving since the beginning of time. And so it almost feels like a cliche that the grandparents will always be like, well, these kids today are running wild and they are so bratty and they talk back. Can you talk a little bit about the crisis of self-regulation, like as you see it? And also like, what does self-regulation mean to you? Right. Those are great questions. And when I started the reporting for this book now, almost six years ago, I was also sort of thinking, oh, it can't be that bad. It just must be anecdotal. I I didn't expect 
expect to find one in two kids will have a mood or behavioral disorder or substance addiction by the time they're 18. Okay, can you repeat that? Because that is so crazy. That's bananas. Right. It's the National Institutes of Mental Health, a study of more than 10,000 children, and they found one in two will have a mood, behavioral disorder, or substance addiction by age 18. So that's anxiety, depression, ADHD, obviously substance problems, alcohol, drugs, what have you. And to, to me, that just completely floored me when I found it and made me start thinking, okay, maybe this isn't just the kids who happen to be in my Girl Scout troop or my family <laughs> that are so difficult to control, to manage their behavior and to help them to cope with their big emotions. Um, and that's, you know, even it gets even scarier. And I hate to scare parents who already have so much on their plate. But, you know, when you look at the suicide rate, the tween suicide rate, and since I have wrote the book, the, these numbers have become updated by the CDC. In the last 10 years, the suicide rate for children 10 to 14 has doubled. And for kids 15 to 18, it's gone up 41%. So these are really epidemic crisis proportions, which is why I hope that parents will read the book and say, okay, it's not just wouldn't it be nice to change my parenting, but I have to address these very serious needs that all of our children are facing. In terms of what is self-regulation, so I use that as the umbrella term for all of these challenges that our children face in managing their emotions, behavior, and thoughts. So whether that's controlling their impulse to shove their sibling or struggling with their feelings of fear about going down the slide or difficulty with transition from school to home or between activities at school. Those are all self-regulation issues. So something that they don't yet have the ability to do that is stopping them from managing themselves. And we should actually expect kids to struggle with self-regulation. It's the In some ways, it's the journey of our whole lives to figure out how do I manage my own unique set of challenges with my thoughts, emotions, and behavior. But especially in the zero to 18 years, there's so much um, growth that kids go through in learning about themselves and learning to manage those behaviors, thoughts, and emotions. You give many, many, many examples in the book of how to do this. But for our listeners who will be picking up the book today, how, what do you, um, what's the gateway into this? How can we help our children self-regulate? Well, the first thing really is awareness. So awareness on our part as parents and their part as kids. And so I always say the first step is connection with our children. And that can be a physical touch that can be just empathy or being present. And in the book you've read, I have so many fascinating scientific studies of how just being with our kids helps them, their own physiology to self-regulate. So that connection is the first very important step. But we're not going to follow our kids through life, right? We're going to separate from them. They're going to have to manage on their own. So the next step is communication. That's the, the second of the three steps in the model of discipline that I outline in the book. And that's really saying, okay, what does it feel like for you when you, you know, this morning when you got so upset over not having the breakfast you wanted, where did you feel it in your body? What, what was it hot? Was it prickly? Was it, you know, and so then they start to 
tune into themselves and really to understand what it is they're feeling and having a name for it and beginning to recognize it as it happens. And then even our goal is to anticipate it before it happens. And then the third step is the final C of the three C's that I have is capability building. So little by little, helping to build their frustration tolerance or impulse control or emotion management or whatever the skill is. And we can help them to notice when they've gotten better at it. So being able to handle the beginning of a big party for a kid who's a little bit shy, maybe it takes them 10 minutes to get off our lap and then the next party, it only takes five. That's progress. And we can be their memory book to really see how much they're evolving and growing. When parents look at this model, uh, you know, some of the judgments might be like, or, okay, let's just get into it. My mother's judgments of my parenting are <laughs> that, you know, I I do not think I'm doing permissive parenting, but she would say I am because I allow all the feelings to come out, right? And my mother would growing up would much more be like, stop it. I don't want to hear it. Stop it. And shutting that down instead of letting, like my daughter with me, like let her have the outburst. Right. So can you talk about, you know, how can I deal with the outburst then? Because then I have to self-regulate, right? And which is why probably my mother had such a low tolerance for it when I was growing right. up. Because right. like, if I let her have those big emotions, then I start having all these emotions because I just want to be like, can, it's 6.40 a.m. I've been up with your baby sister since five. Like, can you just shut up? Like, that's what mm. I want to say. And I don't. So what what tricks do you have that I can uh, use tomorrow, Catherine? I'm desperate. <laughs> well, sleep deprivation is probably the worst enemy of, of calm parenting. So first of all, no, you are normal. This is totally normal and and it's okay. And to answer the question about your mom, what I say to my parents and to um, you know people who are grandparents and looking at their kids and their grandkids and saying, okay, it wasn't this hard. You're just being softies. I say, look, kids are different today. They have a completely different context they're growing up in. When you look at the numbers on suicide and all these disorders we talked about, you have to recognize that the tools that worked, worked 20, 30, 40 years ago simply do not work anymore. And so don't, it's not a judgment on their parenting or them being wrong, but simply we have to do it ourselves for the kids who are growing up today. Because what would happen if today's kids are were raised like we were raised? Do you know what I mean? Like what oh. is – because, for example, listeners will remember a story I shared about how I was nervous about taking my – she was a toddler at the time to Washington, D.C. And I was like, oh, getting on that plane with her is going to be such a pain because she's very spirited. And I just know it's going to be a long journey. And my mom said, well, you know, when you – were that age, we took you to Australia. And I was like, okay, yeah, but also like <laughs> we were different kids. And um, and she's like, well, yeah, but, with the, you know, we were different parents kind of thing. And it was like as though if my mother were the one taking my daughter to Australia, then it would be smooth sailing because my mother would, you know, keep her in line. And so right. I think that if she were listening, there's the argument that – well, maybe all these issues are happening because these kids are feeling so much and they're allowed to talk back. I'm just playing the devil's advocate here. Right. So then I point people to the research and look at what happens to the kids who have 
parents of that style, which we call authoritarian. And there's actually decades of research on the outcomes of kids whose parents are authoritarian. And yes, they may shut up and be quiet in that moment. They may get better grades. They may stay out of trouble in high school, but they end up with much worse mental health. So they, they, they turn those emotions inward. They may end up with anxiety, depression, OCD, and honestly, they may not have the best relationship with us as their parents in, in adulthood. Mm. So, uh, so looking at the research between authoritarian and permissive parents, so permissive parents are sort of the pushovers, um, neither of those models is really working for us anymore. And that's the thing we all go to as parents is the carrot or the stick. How am I going to make the kid do it? Or how am I going to bribe them or plead that with them to do it? Instead, we need to find the authoritative model, which um, I talk about a lot, updated for this, this century is the apprenticeship model of parenting, where you have warmth, connection, you're building your kids' skills, but you also have clear and firm limits, and you're being respectful to yourself as a parent and a human being, as well as to your child's needs. So we're finding that balance. And children who are raised with authoritative parenting have better mental health outcomes. And they also have um, good um, success in life and, and school. So you're able to, to sort of thread the needle. And um, back to your question about how do you regulate yourself? Some of that is also, especially with a child who I think your older daughter is like three. Yeah, four and um, a half. Yeah. Oh, so four and a half, you know, she's able to really see you self-regulate and you can be very transparent. And it's a good thing to say, I'm feeling the heat rise in my body. I'm going to need a minute to calm myself down. So I will A, take a walk around the block, B, put in earbuds and listen to calming music, C, take 10 deep breaths. And that's wonderful, not only because you regain your self-control, but she sees that everyone needs to self-regulate. And she's getting an example of how you handle those feelings that are overwhelming or stressful. So it's a win-win to take a second out of your parenting and self-regulate, both as a model for your child and also to get back in that place where you're going to parent the way that you want to. This is so beautiful. So Okay, if I want to get my four and a half year old to work, though, like let's say <laughs> the house <laughs> household jobs, all right. Now this was really sweet. This weekend we did a a baby sprinkle. For those of you who don't know, a sprinkle is a little much more casual celebration of uh, a mama who's about to have you know a second or third child. And so my girlfriend Marie was ha- is having her third baby. It's going to be a little girl, and my daughter really. Uh, I, I was so amazed by how much she helped me in preparing for this baby spring. She was washing all the patio furniture with me. She was sweeping up. Like, it was so, so darling. And she was so excited to help out. And part of it, though, is the novelty of it, right? And I know that you, you're not supportive of rewards. Um, so if we have a chore chart, let's say, and we agree on what these contributions are, I imagine that Sabrina will do very well that first week. But if we check Mm -hmm. in at week three, how do I keep her motivated um, without stickers and gummy bears and trips to Disneyland and her own pony? And I'm totally kidding. (laughs) Yes, you do not want to get into the bribe uh, escalation war. (laughs) Um, so it's a great question and every single parent faces it. 
So when you start with chores or contributions or jobs, as I like to call them, because who wants to be unemployed? Even kids shouldn't be unemployed. Mm. It's a terrible feeling. So you start with what they're excited about. And whether that's chopping with a big knife or digging in the garden or pulling the hot laundry out of the dryer for some reason, my kids are obsessed with hot laundry. So start with wherever they're excited to start and ask them, you know, which of these jobs would you like to learn how to do? And the first couple of times you do it with them, you're really focusing on encouraging and training and helping them learn how to do the job. And when you have a jobs chart, you get their buy-in. So you ask them, which are the jobs you'd like to do? How should we divide up all the jobs that we have to do every day so that they see everyone's doing them? Parents and kids alike are chipping in. And then there may come a day when the job doesn't get done. So perhaps your child's job is to set the table. You just come to the table with the food and you might start eating with your hands or you might just sort of sit there and kind of look puzzled. Because sooner or later, it will dawn on that child, oh, wait, it's my job to set the table. You don't want to nag or remind or plead or bribe or direct. You just want to let the day evolve and it becomes obvious who is not doing their job. And some days your child just may refuse and you can just let it go. If, if it happens more and more, it may be a sign that you need to change up the jobs chart or the or the chore, chore chart. Um, and sometimes we would have like the magic or mystery box of chores or the, where you pull out something and you may offer also to train jobs with a child. So they don't feel like setting the table. Maybe they want to load the dishwasher instead. And I, I will offer to trade jobs with my kids. So there is an element of letting the natural consequences occur if they choose not to do their jobs and also being a little flexible that if it seems clear that it's gotten boring and they've mastered those jobs, they need need something that's a little more challenging. So I try to just play with it a little bit in my own home and in the parents I talk to to see what is needed when the first, second week novelty wears off. If they don't want to put away their things, what then? When there are tasks that she's not interested in, but are her personal responsibility, like taking her things to her room, or she always needs to take off her shoes and dump the 40 pounds of sand out of them before she walks in the house. Like, I feel like we owe our preschool bags and bags of sand. (laughs) How do I deal with consequences, Catherine? Because like, because those are the, those are the unavoidables. Like, I'm not going to trade those jobs, right? So what? how do I get my daughter not to bring the whole playground into the house? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so I've got a couple ideas. And and there's so many suggestions in the book. And as I say in the book, it's a little bit of being that learning lab. So you kind of need to play a little bit with your own child to see what works. For the too many toys all around the house, there's a couple ideas. First of all, whenever there's a problem, you want to start by asking your kid for ideas. So Lay it out, not you're a bad kid, you're leaving your stuff out, which I know you wouldn't say anyway, but we have a problem with toys scattered on the floor. How should we handle this? You pick them up, mommy. Well, I don't feel it's fair to me for to be picking up someone else's toys. How would you like to handle it? And ideally, you come to a conclusion um, that involves her contributing to, to picking them up. If not, you could say, well... I'm not willing to pick them up and put them back, but I would be willing at when I when you're in bed at the end of the day, if I see toys lying out, I'd be willing to put them in a box 
and put them away for a week because clearly they're not getting back to where they belong. And you may find that your children um, miss those toys that are then put away for a week and they're more motivated to help tidy up in the future. It may also be that they just have too many toys and they they don't miss those toys. So this can also be a way just to pare down a little bit. And sometimes that can be a solution too, that our kids um, have have trouble cleaning up because they just have too many things to play with. And it's hard to organize an entire set of Legos or um, little critters Um, in terms of the sand and the shoes. So sometimes, sometimes what works well for kids is to play or use some some humor or something that helps to tap into kids' love of play. It's a wonderful, natural thing for kids to make believe and to play. And I also talk about in the book how valuable that is for all of those social emotional skills. So you could, um, you know, put a little sign on the um, pile of sand saying, help, I need to go back to the sandbox or, (laughs) oh no, the shoes came in with the sand or, you know, that those kinds of things may tickle your child's funny bone. So they're more cooperative in the future. Mm -hmm. Um, You could make it a family routine that everyone takes their shoes off outside the door. And so then, you know, kids are very social and she's more willing to do it with you. Um, And then the third idea I would have is just help her learn how to use a dust buster. And uh, maybe that. That's a great idea. Right. We'll need a bag of, of sand to the school. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Catherine, here's a question. Oh, God, I'm so embarrassed to ask this. Why does this always happen no, to me on my own show? Okay. I'm always like, oh, why did I say it? Okay, you got to help me with my passive aggression because I know that if I say, you know, well, I can I can't even say it to you without there being passive aggression. Like the I to say, you know, these these it looks like these toys aren't getting picked up. And so, you know, I'm gonna put them I can put them in a box tonight and, you know, I'm gonna put them in the garage for a week. I don't know how to say that without it sounding like a threat or a, right. a veiled threat. Right. Well, it may take some practice, but I would try starting with this very open-ended and you know, so honey, we've got this problem with toys on the floor. I don't want to break your toys. I don't want to hurt myself. What do you think would help? And really start by listening as sincerely as you can to her ideas. So she may come up with something that works for you and try to be as open-minded as possible and make that work. And you can always give it a week to try her method. And if that doesn't work, say, you know what? We gave it a week. Would you be willing to try my method? Which is if I see toys out after you're in bed, I'm going to put them in and put them away for a week. Um, so and see what see what she thinks about it in advance. So it's not at the moment of cleanup. It's far enough in advance that it doesn't feel like a threat. It feels just like planning. So the more you practice, the more um, you can get it past that passive aggressive thing. And I, I mean, I have no shame. When I was first learning all these models, the five years of research I did, and even honestly, three years of parent training before that, I would just channel my parent teachers. And mm-hmm. I I would sort of have Patty Cancelier's voice come out of my mouth. She's the parent education director at the parent encouragement program here in the DC area. And I just fake it until it felt real to me, you know, and so listen to my webinar if you'd like to and, you know, re- listen to this interview again and just try to channel into whatever mm-hmm. authenticity you hear and, you know, the, the methods that I'm talking about until you can produce it on your own 
without feeling passive aggressive. I love it. Okay. So you write, my kids may be more hyperactive than I was and our dinner table more chaotic than my childhood mealtimes, but at least my kids will be more physically fit and will explore more diverse interests than I did in my youth. Can you share a little bit about what your relationship was like with your mom and how did it inform your own parenting journey? Oh, that's such a great question. Um, well, I was an oldest child. I was, uh, my mom is wonder- wonderful, high achieving, brilliant woman uh, from Singapore. She was, you know, the first female um, Asian American vice president at the University of Virginia. And so I really like, wanted to please her. And I was a little bit scared of her disapproval. And so my childhood, I was me a good too. Girl. Me too. Oh my gosh. Yes. We we have a need a support group. <laughs> we do. High achieving I, mothers. <laughs> uh, so I am I am like a recovering tiger mom because I started out parenting thinking, okay, I, you know, went to Harvard. I accomplished all these things in my life. I want my kids to be even better. And I am grateful that my kids did not follow that script because they quickly broke me of any illusion that they were going to be carbon copies of me. And I had to just recognize the children I had and love them and embrace them. And truly to see there is no one right way to do life, right? That that may have been the right path for me, but it may not be the right path for my kids. And in fact, they have so many more creative and funny and different ways of looking at the world that I can benefit from if I stop having my own tunnel vision. So my mom is so wonderful and she actually lives with us. My mom and dad live in our basement. They help us parent and raise our kids. I shouldn't say parent, but they help us with um, the childcare and after school activities. And they also have come a long way in embracing that children today just need different methods. And um, they've been very, very supportive of my new wacky way of raising kids today. Um, So I am grateful that as an adult, I have a relationship with my mom that is so mutually respectful and equal. And I'm no longer scared of her criticism, although I can tell what she's thinking. She's thinking something negative. I still can. What was that conversation like when, because if you live together, especially, she would see how this would play out. And I'm sure she did have her own opinions. Like, what was that conversation like when you said, I'm going to do it this way, or I'm going to do it differently? Yeah, it. Um, I mean, I have to say my parents and my parents-in-law were really skeptical at first because there was a lot more chaos and a lot of noise. And I tried to just um, say, you know, we're trying this and it's not a judgment on the way you raised us. We love the way we turned out and we're just going to try something different. And then I think as our kids got older, the proof was sort of in the pudding where they actually turned out to be pretty decent human beings who are compassionate and gregarious and they have such, I feel like their character shows through and my, my parents and my parents-in-law appreciate that and can see, okay, they've turned out, I mean, they're 11 and 14 and 25 now, so they've turned out okay. And we didn't completely break them. So um, (laughs) they've become more open-minded as we've become more confident in our parenting as well. And you have this other quote that I think is perfect for this, which is before jumping into correct behavior, ask yourself, is it doing any harm? 
And I think that's so beautiful because like we're constantly, or I'm constantly correcting behavior. I'm actually also constantly correcting my own behavior. Like I'm self-correcting and I'm, mm-hmm. I'm becoming more aware of that and being like, wait, is it doing any harm? Like maybe I let myself off the hook a little more often. Um, is it doing any harm that my car is a mess? And then, well, actually it is because I went to the CPR class and they said, you got to clean out the car because <laughs> the stuff in the car can really hurt you in an accident. Anyway, so <laughs> the, the quote though is, before jumping into correct behavior, ask yourself, is it doing any harm? <laughs> There's like this whole section in the book about how our mother's critical comments can affect the chemistry of our brains. So can you just share a little bit about that? Because I think that this is something that's really, really important for us to understand and can be a really incredible motivator for finding these alternative ways of interacting with our children and, you know, just fostering our relationships. Right. And that's what it's such an important point. I'm so glad you mentioned it because that's what strengthens my backbone when I start to slip into that fear-based parenting culture of, oh my gosh, my kid's not going to get into Harvard or they're not going to get into that, you know, arts magnet high school or they're not going to have all of these special opportunities. I have to remember that it's more important for them to accomplish things on their own that are driven by their intrinsic motivation than it is for me to drive them into it. And whatever I try to push them into is just going to come out badly. They're going to, if they, even if they get into whatever I wanted to push them into, they will know that I maybe didn't think they could do it on their own, that they didn't entirely choose it. And they might have that own little self-doubt of like, did I really earn this? Or was it because my mom was such a harsh advocate for me? So I, I really try to um, still that voice in my own head. And I, it's, as your kids get older and old, older, I think it becomes easier because they do start to repeat back to you the things that you say. And it's a huge reality check that if you're speaking with compassion and love and respect to your children, those are the, that's the language they will speak. If you're speaking criticism and blame, they will blame and criticize. So it's never too late to change. If you start hearing your children use those kind of language, like it's your fault that this happened. Think about, oh gosh, am I blaming? Am I criticizing? And criticism, parental criticism has been linked to relapse into depression and eating disorders and um, all these other really serious conditions. So you may not know if your child's vulnerable to some of these serious psychiatric conditions. So it's really better to play it safe and try to foster an environment of encouragement and independence where they really can take risks. And the sooner they take those risks and maybe fail a little bit and see that that you still love them, then then the more adventurous they're going to become. And I believe the evidence shows they're going to actually be more high achieving in directions that maybe you couldn't have anticipated to begin with. Thank you. Thank you so much. So for our listeners, occasionally, if a a quote strikes me as like, oh, this is something I really want to carry with me uh, when I am with my children, I call it the mom bomb. And so I pulled this one from your book and it's, I tell my children that their job until age 18 is to figure out who they are 
what fuels their passion, and how they will contribute their unique skills to the world. My role is to support them in sorting that out, not to impose my own choices on them. So thank you so much, Catherine. I really appreciate this conversation. What a pleasure. I'm all uh, choked up now. I, I love that quote too. And I wish you the best on your parenting journey and so honored to be on the podcast today. Thanks so much. Okay, everyone. I'm going to get back in the house. It's time for me to nurse. Until next week, trust in your goodness, live out your greatness. Rock on, Atomic Moms. Thank you.